Welcome to Bewildered. I'm Martha Beck, here with Rowan Mangan. At this crazy moment in history, a lot of people are feeling bewildered, but that actually may be a sign we're on track. Human culture teaches us to come to consensus, but nature, our own true nature, helps us come to our senses. Rowan and I believe that the best way to figure it all out is by going through bewilderment into bewilderment. That's why we're here. For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, A few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025, but I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass. And we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star. Hi, I'm Martha Beck. And I'm Rowan Mangan, and this is another episode of Bewildered. You know it, the podcast for people trying to, that's right, figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how are you doing, Marty? Uh, for someone who has figured nothing out, I am tolerably well. Thank you. And you? Tolerably well. You can tolerate your own wellness. Mm, barely. How about you? Um, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I haven't had enough sleep lately. No kidding. don't know if I've mentioned it to you two or three times an hour for the last week, but... <laughs> Yeah, being on a little insomnia jag. As you crawl from room to room. It really has been bad. The one good thing, the one good thing about it is that complaining always makes it better. (laughs) There is nothing that complaining doesn't make better, right? Absolutely. Complaining and 4,000 milligrams of caffeine. So much caffeine. Oh, Mm. my God, so much caffeine. But don't worry, Marty. We've got this. Uh Uh-huh. All right. I'm not sure what we've got. Probably the virus that Lila's been dealing with that keeps you up at night. But whatever we've got, we've got it. We've got this. Ah, so what are you trying to figure out in a, in a broader, more philosophical sense? I I don't know. You. Always you. <laughs> one way or another. You're, a, Good you're a puzzle. You're an enigma. And wrapped. you're also like super cute. Oh, an enigma you. wrapped in bacon <laughs> that just grossed me out as i said it i wish i hadn't said it i wish i and could time it's travel and, it's my beauty secret <laughs> continuously <laughs> wrapping myself in bacon for your great blurb for your next book we could just get liz gilbert or someone to just write martha beck is an enigma wrapped in bacon <laughs> <laughs> enfolded by aluminum foil yes enfolded <laughs> Sweetly um, enveloped. Yeah. So this is my cute little story for the listeners about you for oh, the week dear. because I oh, want no. them to know because you kind of play a bit of a persona on this podcast and I just want them to know that it is absolutely not contrived and 100% just what you're like. So a friend of ours had a birthday this past week True. and we wanted to go get her some flowers. So we looked at our little chores and who had the time and who had the car and you – I were did. nominated to be the one to go pick up the flowers. For it's a once. big responsibility. Because everyone, you. no one trusts me to drive. Let's just <laughs> make that clear. Nobody trusts me to drive. So, yeah. There were dire circumstances. They were desperate. They let yeah. me have the keys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so off you went to get the flowers. And as you sort of guiltily confessed later on, you didn't just go mm-hmm. and get flowers, did you? did I do? Am I a werewolf? You told us that you did go and get the flowers. You absolutely did. You are trustworthy. You picked Mm. up the flowers, Mm. but then you remembered that someone had told you that at the canal nearby, there were beavers. Well, yeah. And so you, you sort of told me later that night, I didn't just go to get the flowers and come home. I, I went off to to look for 
beavers. I did. And you you were like, but there was nowhere to park, so I parked illegally. (laughs) And and you were so scared about getting a ticket or something because we'd entrusted you with the sacred flower mission that you had to (laughs) check on the beavers, so you had to park illegally. So you didn't want to get a ticket, so you you raced to the beavers in order to quickly check on them and then get back to the car. The alleged beavers. I did not see them. I sprinted to the alleged beaver location. I that thought you be... saw one of them now. Well, that was later because I've been back. <laughs> <laughs> of course you have. But this is the first I've heard of it. Yeah. So um, the other day when I had to do something like medical, I uh, thought, <laughs> well, you know, doctor's appointments take a little extra time. So I parked legally. Uh-oh. Took quite a little jog to the alleged beaver location and just crouched there. Oh, Rowie, <laughs> there was a pile. Of, there's a pile of sticks. They've made a pile of sticks. And I just sat there and looked at the pile of sticks. And there were fish jumping. And I thought, this is magical. And I just squatted there on my haunches the way I do. And um, in the middle of just sitting there, I hear this. And un- from under the pile of sticks came a little furry head. Oh, swim around for me. Was it? It might have been Joshua the stuffed monkey because I made that mistake with Lila once. A little furry head came <laughs> along, and I thought it was our daughter, and it turned out just to be Joshua the the inanimate monkey toy. If I had thought of it, I would have taken Joshua the the stuffed monkey and uh, sacrificed him by throwing him into the beaver dam just to, to like as bait, like a decoy. <laughs> I would have sacrificed anything to see that beaver. I love the idea that in your world, a stuffed monkey is beaver bait. <laughs> this is so, we are we are skating so close to the edge. Wait, no. Sailing so close to the wind. I don't know what that means, but they say it. Skating on thin ice. We are skating so close to the wind right now because of the unfortunate. Um, yes. We, well, no, we know. We, did, we don't have to, we don't have to say it. Yeah, we don't have to say it. Let's but just, just leave it. Let's be grown-ups about this and just yeah. let it be there without having to pick at it. <laughs> but being get, being lesbians, it's... Uh, yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not just saying a thing. I will just say I would sacrifice any of our daughter's uh, toys to see another beaver. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe on your birthday, honey. <laughs> what is wrong with us? Money. For I God's just like sake, animals. Dig us out of this hole. What are you oh. trying to figure out? Uh, I'm trying to figure out, you know, I, I've started drawing and painting a lot, as you know, because it's the thing I love most in the world. And what seems to surprise you and Karen is that part of what I love most in the world is to go into an absolutely tyrannical rage, like a oh. two year old, when I can't yeah. get something to look the way I want it. And she's, and it's, dark guys it's not like how she's cute like when she's telling stories like this it's like it's quite scary energy when martha goes into an art rage a watercolor rage especially because you can't you can't erase watercolor and i have another i have a friend who's an artist actually it's one of my children and uh so that might be why she also goes into a rage when she's doing her art she's really good and uh we 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 bonded over our art rage the other day but then it's worse because with the internet, I can actually go on and I see these brilliant artists and they post videos explaining how to do things, which I've never had in my life. I totally self-taught except for like one class. And ah, the thing is that artist videos will drive you mad hmm. because they're in the right side of their brains, right? And that does two things. It takes out time, so they're not aware time is passing. And it takes out language so they can't talk. So, oh, so these see- are like live videos of people painting and supposedly yes. talking about what they're doing and yes. explaining and it to you. and what it is is 45 minutes of dab, 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 dab. <laughs> well, now, dab, 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 dab. You see how I, dab, dab. oh, okay, wait, no. All right, dab, dab, dab. You can fix that. I'm speeding this up, actually. This is like over an hour and a half. Now you're going to see some magic. Never say another word about it. (laughs) I feel like I could be a TikTok sensation by secretly filming you in an art rage because it's a very different sort of energy from what you're describing there. 
It's indescribable. And then you're trying to watch this person who has no sense of time and no language, who, who purports to be teaching you what to do to get out of your art rage. And it just makes you homicidal along with, I don't know what the art rage does. It makes you want to just um, become a hurricane and destroy everything. Wow. But then, then you get it to work and it's totally worth it. It's like, oh, yeah, heaven. She has this whole other life. Heaven. Amazing. Heaven. Well, I'm sure you'll figure it out, my love. I doubt that, but I'm going to keep trying because that's what we do because we're bewildered. Yeah. We'll be right back with more Bewildered. I have a favor to ask. You might not know this, but ratings and reviews are like gold in the podcasting universe. They get podcasts in front of more faces, more eyes, more ears, all the bits that you could have a podcast in front of. That's what they do. So it would help us enormously if you would consider going over to your favorite podcasting app, especially if it's Apple, and giving us a few stars, maybe even five, maybe even six. If you can find a way to hack the system, I wouldn't complain. And um, a review would be also be wonderful. We read them all and love them. So thank you very much in advance. Let's just go out there and bewilder the world. Mwah. For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, a few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025, but I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass. And we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star. And what is our topic? Today, yeah, let's get to it. So um, we're always talking about anxiety one way or another, aren't we, Marty? Well, even if we're not talking about it, it's always there, right? <laughs> it's, it's always the subtext. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're anxious little bunnies. and um, But now it's kind of fun to be an anxious bunny because Marty's working on a book about anxiety. And so mm -hmm. we're learning all about it. We're thinking all about it. We're talking all about it. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. all your research is so amazing. I know. So we thought, well, let's do it. There are many aspects of it, actually. It's a very big topic. So we thought, let's do some episodes about this and write a book and teach a course and do all the things. But this episode is our first anxiety episode so far. I mean, in a way, they've all been anxiety episodes for me, mm. but um, it's just mm. in a subtextual way. I think we've probably actually talked about anxiety quite a lot. Oh, you think? Yeah. <laughs> It's like breathing. Yeah, it is. Ah, oh, deep breath. No, nice, long, deep breath. But here's the thing, you know, we we need to talk about it because it's going so completely ballistic in mm. the entire human population around the world. Anxiety disorders are just climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing. So there's a fair chance that some of y'all out there listening have a little bit of struggle with this issue. Yeah, yeah. So this topic today, though, is kind of... I don't know. It's slightly adjacent to it because uh, mm. this is more like something that we've noticed about life that that has to do with anxiety, I guess, and, mm. and just how we do life and how anxiety does us in life kind <laughs> yes, of thing. it does. Yeah. Yeah, and I keep having conversations with people who are looking for a sense of safety and they're looking mm. for a sense of safety the way I look for beavers. <laughs> like it's something <laughs> out there. And I really, really, really need to find it. And it's not readily apparent. And I don't even really know its tracks. And I don't know how to create it. And it seems to actually increase the anxiety as they're looking for a sense of safety. And the what I know from the research I'm doing is that the way they're looking for safety is actually increasing their anxiety. And so you and I were talking about this. And we thought, we should say this on Bewildered. 
Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. I don't know if this is, is a digression or not, but, um, you know, I feel like there's this weird continuum in our culture, which is whatever. I'm not going to define our culture. You know what I'm talking about? Just vaguely American. Go back to the North episodes American, where Western. we. Yeah. Oh God, I'm so sick of trying to do that. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, where you start at safety and it like slides on this long spectrum to a point where it's more like convenience. Mm. And it's like, so I think about convenience all the time about how like the more convenient our lives get, the harder it becomes to tolerate inconvenience. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, people have heard me go on about cup holders on this show before. <laughs> We're back to the cup sort holders. Of, <laughs> all right, look, I have feelings about cup holders. I don't try to hide it. I try, also don't try to bring it up every time I think of it. But like think about in the cart at the supermarket, there's a cup holder in the cart. I mean, genius, mm-hmm. but also totally debilitating for us. Once you have taken your coffee to the supermarket and found a cup holder for it, to push it around in your cart. The next time you come, if there's no cup holder in that cart and you've got your coffee in your hand, you're screwed. There's, you, right? Like, you might as well just leave. Forget about yeah, it. Yeah, and and it's like what? No cup holder, and and you don't know what to do anymore. And it's just like, and I, it's all bound up with the kind of as as companies compete to mm. against each other, they like. Everything's so the same that they're just trying to add, like the only edge, the only competitive edge so often is slightly more convenient way of doing things. (laughs) And and slowly it's just getting to a point where where we can't do anything for ourselves. And I feel like this is analogous to how anxiety works and there's Mm. all kinds of reasons at the moment where, you know, we can get to our point where the tolerance that we have for the discomfort of anxiety starts to actually inhibit how we act, how we're prepared to live, um, the risks we're prepared to take, the amount of of vulnerability that we're prepared to show and so on. And, And so, you know, there's a lot of different reasons for that. But, you know, I think a lot of it recently is technology and how much we can do. I mean, we joke on this show about how we never leave our house and we never do. We don't. We really Except don't for either. beaver hunting. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's true of any. No, I'm not going down no, that road. No, no. That's what she <laughs> no, said. No, it, it's true. We There's so much. We're doing this in our house right now. Like we're talking to all the peoples in our house. Why go anywhere? It's so convenient. And it, it really is convenient. Um, it also feels safe. <laughs> exactly. You feel yeah. safe. You're in your little cubby hole. And you, by the way, are constantly trying to make smaller cubby holes. No. Now you're obsessed with moving into a van. I want to do a whole episode on that. Let's not. Oh, at first it was tiny houses, but those aren't tiny enough. Now she wants <laughs> vans. I'm going to get a little dog tra- crate for you and just crate train you because you'd be oh, so happy there. I could make so it so happy. cute in there. <laughs> Have all your supplies along the road. Anyway. There's a point here, and that is that the smaller the space you occupy in terms of your activities in the world, the smaller the space where you feel safe. So during the pandemic, anxiety just zipped up. It went up 25% in the year 2020 alone around the world, right? 25%. Like the, the rapidity of that increase is unheard of. When I first read that, I thought, well, of course, everyone's afraid of getting sick and dying, losing their relatives, supply chain problems and everything like that. There is stuff to be afraid of. But then as we were, it wasn't weirdly, I've been writing about this and yet it wasn't till we were talking about the convenience thing earlier Mm. that I saw, oh, wait, what has been happening as people went into lockdown is increasing mobility in the same way that agoraphobia develops in the human brain. Okay, so this is something, let me, I do have a point. There's something that you can Google, every psychologist in the world knows about this called the anxiety cycle. And the way it works is that somebody has a difficult experience. Let's use the classic example. Agoraphobia means fear of the marketplace. So being in a crowded space is usually the first place that triggers a panic. It's probably just because they forgot to put the cup holders in the cart <laughs> right. in the no marketplace. No cup holder! I'm never leaving the house. 
So what happens is that the human brain so good at making connections connects the feeling of panic with that place. So later people start to, to avoid that place. It becomes very frightening for them. But the, the human brain is just, it just generates fear in certain conditions. And so mm -hmm. they're going to have another panic attack and they'll be in a different place. Say this time it's at um, a friend's house. They'll stop going to that friend's house. Then they'll stop going to any friend's house. Then they start mm -hmm. to get worried when they are in a car, no more cars. Then they start to get panicky when they're outside the house and, and even different rooms in the house. And I've, I've known people who were stuck in one room, like a bedroom, bathroom combo for literally years. And the thing is, no matter how tiny you make the space, that space becomes frightening. Mm. But going out of the space, because you are so frightened, is feels undoable, feels mm. suicidal. And it's not rational. And people who have it know it's not rational. But it happens. And when everyone started staying in their houses, I think our comfort zones shrank. Literally, as our physical mobility shrank. It's so funny how the agoraphobia example is like it's a metaphor and it's a, it's a literal it's also a literal kind of factor. Yeah, and yeah, yeah it's so weird that you're just pointing to my like tiny house and van life obsession as part of this. But isn't it cool that if you live in a van, not, I'm not gonna, <laughs> don't worry, I'm not going to go on about it for too long, but I just want to say, like, if you live in a van and you have a teeny little space and you've got your little bed there and it's all, and you can drive off anywhere and then still go like retreat in, go out, retreat in, at least it's a, like, it's a sort of, it's like mobile agoraphobia, <laughs> like agoraphobia on the road that's going to be my instagram handle that's it yeah rowan okay. mangan agoraphobia on the road um to all the people out there who are suffering from this we do we are not mocking it it is a horrible experience and um more and more people are having it and we're not mean to laugh at you we're just laughing with you. oh my god <laughs> no it's where it's hor anxiety sucks yeah. Can I just be the first to say? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anxiety sucks and no one is disputing that. Yeah. Um, the thing and about... I, just in terms of mobility, it reminded me of the tire shredder analogy. Oh, good. Yeah, I, I was thinking that because there's there's a thing that happens not just in the world but that the way that our brains work and don't work um, that exacerbates this tendency, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it is. It has to do with the way we focus on the left hemisphere more than the right hemisphere. That's really involved with it. Um, but what it does basically is there's a little bit of the brain that has an alarm response to something unfamiliar um, in the left hemisphere. And then that alarm response goes straight to the whole brain, obviously. It goes straight to the whole body and creates a fight, flight, fawn response. Um, but in humans, we have a cortex that can tell stories about the feeling of fear. So what happens is that there's, you see something unfamiliar, there's a spark, spark of fear, which is not based on anything rational. It's a deep animal instinctual sense of fear. But then the human part of your brain goes, oh, there's a reason for this. I'm gonna make up an excuse for why I'm afraid. I'm afraid because um, there is, it's a cloudy day and I just don't like rain, I'm afraid of thunderstorms or whatever. And it's so interesting because when they do brain studies and they show an image to the right side of the brain, but the left side can't see it. And then they ask, okay, sorry, let me this just This is getting this very dense. And <laughs> yeah. I don't see a tire shredder in sight. Ah, it, okay, but uh, this <laughs> is the thing. The left side of the brain makes up reasons for whatever is going on inside it. And right. if there is a fear response for any reason, it will say, you should be afraid. This is a rational fear and it will find something to be afraid of. Like that person's looking at me strangely and I'm afraid of them. And it's because they are thinking this, 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 and this. So right. we make up danger. And what that does is it, instead of it just going out the way it would with a nonverbal animal, the verbal story feeds back in to the primitive part that sparks fear and it increases the fear. Oh, and like then if, goes you're, if you're looking at me weird and I, like I'm more, I'm more likely to attach a story to that which 
is already a bias that I have. Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you are looking at my double chin and thinking thoughts about it. And so then not only am I afraid, I'm also validated in a belief yeah. for, for a reason to be afraid. Yeah. And then you'll believe that I am somehow thinking negative thoughts about you and you may, and that will increase the amount of fear. So you'll think, you know, she's always judging me anyway. Like, and and then the fight instinct will come in again. And then that story makes you really inflamed. And then you're more afraid. That person is really monstrously threatening. And it creates what is known as an unregulated feedback cycle where it, what goes up never comes down. The, so you the, get more anxious and you never get less anxious. That's correct. So the fear feeds, the the spark feeds into the verbal story and the verbal story feeds the spark and it becomes this conflagration that you believe is real. And because we also have something called a negativity bias, we're always looking for what's dangerous. And when you get the combination of those two, the negativity bias that's always looking for danger, and then this this cycle of anxiety that never lets it come down, just keeps driving it up, you have a a recipe for massive, sustained, horrific anxiety. And people, I think this is happening to millions, billions of people. Tire shredder. Mm. Keyword, tire shredder. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, so tire <laughs> shredders, if you're unfamiliar, are the they're like these fangy, teethy, metal things that are at like the exit of a parking garage or whatever. And it will say, do not back up severe tire damage. So if you drive forward across them, they all lie down flat and, and you drive over them, but then they rear up again. <laughs> and if you, you are if you not drive- helping people's anxiety, picture teeth, <laughs> metal teeth rising out of the ground. They rear up again. So if you back up, they will just eat the crap out of your tires. So, Anxiety works like a tire ripper. You go forward into more and more and more and more and more anxiety, but you can't back up back up easily you, you, because the, the fear itself says, if, you're, if you don't stay afraid, you are really in danger. Right. And I've actually had clients say to me, my intense anxiety is the only thing keeping me safe. It's and amazing I'm, how self-evident that even sounds, like the culture around anxiety. Yes. And because the culture and the psychology reinforce each other in this way, like you've just mm-hmm. described the neuromechanics of it and it, it all suits, it, it all fits well together, culture and, yeah. and, and biology. Yeah, by all you know that I don't, I don't really like to talk about. <laughs> but what I do want to talk about in the context of like how anxiety works and how messed up it is that that we tend towards greater and greater anxiety and and don't really have a a reverse (laughs) ability to reverse back into calm um in a direct way that i i like talking about courage in the face Mm. of anxiety you know we I don't feel like we talk about courage enough. And we certainly don't talk about it. If you, I, I bet if you did a content analysis of all the media and all the infinite texts and everything, I bet anxiety would come up a lot more often than the word courage. Because I think like we, so the thinking that we've been describing with that sort of example of agoraphobia is like the anxiety that leads you to in to listen to it and and inhibit your behavior and then you know and it can then it can ramp up in the way you were just describing but but like and then we can talk about you know meditation whatever calm calm down the anxiety and that's quite different from sort of stepping towards the anxiety and that's sort of what we thought we'd talk about today with courage there's a beautiful quote from Anais Nin who says life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. And when you think about that example of now I can't go, you know, to my friend's house, now I can't go to the living room. Um, That's about life shrinking. And, And that's not to say that agoraphobics don't have courage or anything like it, but we're just kind of playing with that today, that idea. Well, it's kind of like... In the Divine Comedy, there are places where Dante is going through and Virgil's ghost is his guide. And there are places where Virgil comforts him and says it's going to be okay. And then he gets to certain places where he says, you're just going to need courage for this one. 
I can't soften mm. this one for you. You're going to mm. have to, you know, bring all your courage because that's the only thing you can go on anymore. And there comes a point when you get anxious enough about enough things that courage is your final, um, it's the last straw. It's the yeah. last hope, but it's yeah. a big hope. It's a huge hope. Yeah, but you're, I mean, you're risking I mean, what's what's the greater risk? You know, it's it's that kind of question, exactly. right? Um, you know, we was th- sort of wanted to talk a little bit about like how that that looks for us. So, mm, you know, mm. my because we're we're talking about tolerance for the discomfort of anxiety, that sort of thing. So, right, um, my areas in my life where my tolerance will like shrink really fast like i avoid one situation and i notice that my comfort zone is smaller you know that i have to keep pushing back against Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you know um for me there's like situations where i have a fear of embarrassment Mm. um or a fear of being seen which is pretty (laughs) you know similar kind of is there any difference Oh, um, these, I guess they're all similar, but it's, you know, and it's to do with people, right? And it's to yeah. do with culture, actually. Um, big one, and I know that the peeps will relate to this, is the fear of social awkwardness. Like, oh, to yeah. me, you would think from my anxiety reactions that a socially awkward situation, you might as well be flaying me alive. <laughs> like, I treat the possibility of a long, awkward silence with someone I don't know very well as though... I would not survive it. <laughs> so funny. School pickups. Oh, don't even talk to me. I'm like, oh, I don't have any mum friends. I wonder why. Um, it's so funny. I thought that you were kind of a fragile being at one time. And then I watched you going through medical treatments and, and like enduring things that are incredibly physically painful. And you're like, so what? That's I didn't a, have to talk a, to anyone. It's <laughs> a flesh wound. And I'm like, how can you do that? And you're like, I didn't have to talk. Yeah, yeah, but it's true. You don't talk to the other moms when you go to pick up our little one. Yeah, I, I you know, but I, I, try, I will try and extend myself in that area. What's mm-hmm. yours? What are your things where you don't have high tolerance for discomfort and anxiety? Similar. It all has to do with other people, sometimes animals. Um, but I'm not afraid of animals in the usual way. I wouldn't mind if an animal killed me, but I would be very, very upset if an animal were disappointed. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I cannot stand to see someone or something feeling disappointed. I'm okay with being disappointed, but to watch another being feel disappointed is, you know, it's like being flayed alive. And actually Lila picked up on this, our two-year-old, because when she has tantrums, you'll sometimes talk about her feelings with her to help her name them. Oh, it's so disappointing when you wanted to go outside and it's getting dark and you can't go out and just, ah! And the other day she was having a grandma and she practices tantrums. You can hear her in a room going, woo, woo, and then, literally looking in the mirror. Yeah. And then getting to a full throat that would like, she could be rented out for special effects in movies. Can I just tell them something that's totally unrelated? Yes. So in the bath, when she has a bath, sorry, Americans, a bath, when she goes a in bath. the tub, when she goes in the tub. Say bath. Never stop saying bath. I won't. I won't. Lila's his bath too. I love it. Um, so there's, what is it? It's like the thing, it's like a tap, I guess, if I wanted to give it a term, a faucet type thing. But there's a silver metal round circle that the tap lives in. Okay. I, I'm sure that's not the technical term, but you know. That's what plumbers call it. <laughs> she can see her reflection in this circle oh. when she stands in the bath and parents you know we don't encourage standing in the bath at this age um or ever like what are you doing lie down aren't you tired um and, and i found you lying in the bath today she she, she stands there watching herself cry <laughs> and if i put my hand over it to block her view she gets even more distraught tries to push it away <laughs> so that she can watch herself cry while standing in the bath I mean, yeah. she's so her mother's daughter. And um, and the other day I was like, come on, Lila, sit down. We've got to wash your hair. And she said, no, mummy, I'm crying white now. 
<laughs> that was me. That you're confusing us. I was saying that. <laughs> oh. Sorry, sorry. I just well, it's funny. It's cute. It is funny. And the other day when she was really in the midst of sh like a full shrieking lying on the ground. She screams almost incoherently. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> You've forgotten the context of that. That was in response to having to have her diaper change. Oh, that's true. And <laughs> she was just so disappointed I'm in us. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> I was so hoping to keep this urine-soaked rag against my skin <laughs> for a bit longer. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm going to take it and put it against my skin. Anyway, lamp. I know that was. That was <laughs> what the fuck was that? <laughs> it was a bridge too far. That's what it was. That's what it was. A bridge too far. Several no, bridges. Anything where, especially if I haven't met people's expectations, <gasps> the thought that people will see me as not having done enough. Oh my god, unbearable anxiety. And the only one that comes from like inside me is the fear of being exhausted like mm. physically exhausted, like sleep deprived as you are now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I'd have to say those two things are related as I think about it, that my fear of being fatigued probably goes along with my absolute dread of letting any creature ever be disappointed as long as I live. Yeah. I don't get it. It exhausts me. Oh, okay. So how, I'm exhausted. Do how does fear of fatigue, like, do you not go out for a walk or something because you're so scared you'll feel fatigued i do think how does it affect your behavior um mainly it keeps me from traveling oh that's right yeah. yes yeah that makes total sense yeah i've yeah. been unbelievably torturously exhausted on the various book tours and speaking tours i used to do and it built up a fear of exhaustion that is really quite debilitating right and that's the because yeah. it went into the cycle mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. where it was reinforced by the yeah. situation that kept surrounding it that's yeah. fascinating Once, like collapsed in an airport woke up in a hospital that kind of thing i mean it was it was pretty pretty major See, look, but, but listen you're trying to make it like but it's a totally justified fear because i woke up in a hospital da, da 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 did you catch that like instead of going yeah it's this is a big anxiety you're like it's a totally rational anxiety you make a solid point yeah, you make a solid a, point i just wanted the people to know i'm not a wimp fear of wimp. being seen wimp. where is it fear of being seen <laughs> as not doing enough was the one you mentioned damn you Rowan mangan you use my words against me. <laughs> ah! I, uh, you know, there are some, though, that I've gotten over, which goes to the point of this episode. You can get over these things. Mm -hmm. And um, like I used to be afraid, and I think this is huge in our culture, of uh, being wrong. Mm, right. Like, I think the academic system really trains yep. people in that direction, right? The ego gets very attached to being right. And you can totally see how people wouldn't put themselves in a situation where they yeah. could be tested and found wrong. Look stupid. Yeah. And and yeah. that you're right. It's t it's total ego food and it makes you um and having both of us spent quite a bit of time in the system of academia, you see people I mean, one of the, my favorite examples of this is when I wrote in my book Expecting Adam about how once I went into a Harvard seminar um of psychologists or sociologists and I'd been visiting a psychologist friend in her lab and she was swimming rats around t for this particular experiment. And she had a kid's pool with these little blue cartoons called Smurfs. And I came into this seminar at Harvard and I said, sorry, I'm late. I was upstairs watching them swim rats around in the Smurf pool. And they thought I meant a, a psychologist named Smurf. So then they all started talking about Smurf's latest work and how they'd all read it. <laughs> Brilliant. And how they knew all about it, and everyone was afraid to not know who Smurf was. <laughs> yeah, the emperor has no clothes. Anyway, so yeah, the, all those fears of looking stupid and all of that. I just at a certain point, well, when my son was born and they and I, he has Down syndrome, and I was like, what was I thinking? Of course I'm. Of course I don't know things. I don't know anything, and I just sort of came out with it. And that kind of goes to our whole point about the way culture trains us to deal with these anxieties and the way um, nature would have us do. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, I wonder in the same way if that that cycle 
um, that you were describing in the brain where this goes to that, feeds back to that, feeds into that and and ramps Mm -hmm. up the anxiety all the time. I feel like culture and ego (laughs) uh, do the same thing in a a destructive but I want to say positive in the sense of with a plus not yeah an increasing way yes yeah Yeah. um and and I feel like when we're talking about courage we also need to be talking about humility to a certain extent and that's where that ego culture um comes in because when we are pushing up against a tendency for our lives to get smaller um, yeah, yeah. And now we're getting into Brene Brown territory as we always end up there because she's so mm-hmm. brilliant. But, you know, where you are, you do get to a point where vulnerability, the vulnerability of risking being wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, and you have to start making those those kind of calculations of it's worth risking being wrong for the richness that these experiences start to bring to my life. Yeah. And the honesty, the sort of landing in reality instead of living in this artificially um, uh, safe world, artificially safe. It's the mm. that metaphor about the, the king who wanted to cover his kingdom in leather so that nothing would ever hurt his feet. And a shoemaker came along and said, <laughs> why don't we put some leather on your feet? And the leather on your feet is courage and humility. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So we've sort of touched on what the culture would, mm. would say about this, but like, let's be explicit. So it really is about avoiding discomfort. Like if you, this should be comfortable. Everything should be comfortable. We've, we've developed the option of being so comfortable, as you said, like every company is trying to edge out every other company and making everything more convenient, everything mm. easier, everything um, less challenging. And there's because an- I really believe that, we start, our tolerance for discomfort gets so tiny that we start mistaking convenience and safety. Like we start thinking if this is less convenient, I should be afraid. Right, right. Oh, and also, (laughs) also we're able to be in little small groups of people now because the internet lets us reach out. So we don't, we're not bumping around with a whole bunch of really diverse people. Yeah, that's right. we talk about Little diversity, echo chamber thing, but there are so many echo chambers online, and um, you don't have to like try to figure out what someone's saying in a strange accent. You know, it's like, or or they're using a different vocabulary than yours, and that beca- it's more convenient to be with people who don't challenge your thoughts or ideas at all. Right. Or oh, the obvious one is different politics. Yeah. Ooh, from me. And you know, I'm not. I am not a great one for going out and seeking conversation online with people who don't agree with my politics. Same I, here, babe. <laughs> But by the same token, um, you know, I went to, I had an appointment with my foot doctor and my foot doctor started expressing completely different politics from mine. And I was, I literally was like afraid there in the office. Mm. And I had to ask myself, am I seeing this person as a human? Am I bringing my humility and my courage here? Um, Because I'm really uncomfortable with this and I wish I could just get away from it. Oh my God, that is such a good point. I have a fear reaction to seeing some of those flags and yeah. stuff that you see people put outside their houses. Um, it, that that terrifies me. And it's ridiculous that it terrifies me because ultimately, you know, there's a fundamental, well, maybe not fundamental, there's a disagreement there. and But if it starts to feel fundamental, doesn't it? Because it's a really good example, Marty, of we're not challenging ourselves in that way and we yeah. are starting to experience fear and that said i'm not hugely interested in extending myself in that precise way nor am i but that actually isn't our point our point here is that there's an underlying assumption that discomfort is not something we should have to tolerate any kind of psychological discomfort or physical Mm. discomfort for that matter so the culture basically puts into each head of ours the thought if i'm uncomfortable i'm either in the totally the wrong place or something should be done to make me completely comfortable I need to be comfortable. I I deserve to be comfortable all the time. And discomfort is a sign that something's really, really wrong. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And since life isn't comfortable, when you have the message in your head, discomfort is dangerous, you're going to be uncomfortable. And if you interpret that as danger, you're going to be so anxious. So inconvenience is going to 
drive you into a tiny, a tiny zone of safety. Yeah. Well, inconvenience itself can contribute to this growing. All the things we want, ease, uh, lavishness, uh, care, self-care, tenderness, all these things that are really genuinely, positively, wonderfully good. If you refuse to accept discomfort and you say, this is all I will experience, Mm. you will, the the discomfort of anxiety will follow you in and it will make your self-care scary to you. It will make, it will literally pollute absolutely everything. Anais Nin was absolutely right. It will shrink your life in proportion to your courage. Um, If you, and, and the message is you shouldn't have to keep your life big. Your life should just be big and comfortable at the same time without you having mm. to do anything, which would be lovely. someone else's responsibility. Yeah. And that would be lovely, but it's impossible because of our the way our brains work. We have to, well, we have to follow nature. So like, I think we should move on to what we think about that. All right. Let's do that in just a moment. Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com slash purpose and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. So how do we figure it out? We've seen what what culture says, um, but what does nature say? First of all, um, you know, we talk about nature culture and nature is like this whole romantic image of like, Mm dancing around in fields full of butterflies while squirrels feed us nuts. Nature is actually, Mother Nature is a generous and infinite source, but she is not easy. She doesn't coddle. Nature doesn't coddle us. Mm. Mother Nature can actually be a heartless bitch or seem to be. Yeah, yeah, and it's that that sort of indifference. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> the world's not interested in in making your path soft for your little feet. Mm-hmm. Um, we just read a novel that just reminded us about it, which was just like, you know, survival in the, out in the woods in, you know, difficult circumstances. And it was like, oh yeah, no, there's a lot of different ways that you can just die. Oh, like you can die so fast. Like at one point it's just raining and they're too tired. The, the characters in the novel are too tired to change their clothes because they've been running from things. And um, they know if they can't change their clothes, they'll die in three hours of hypothermia. Like you don't think about that stuff till you're out there. And then it's really clear. <laughs> I'm starting to see more and more why people just stay in their room. Remember when we went to see the Redwood Forest in California? Yes, and I do. like and I'd been living out we'd we'd been living out near nature and we were driving on this desolate thing and what did I need? I needed <laughs> something. I feel like it was cream or something like well, that. Yeah, like antibiotic cream. I cut myself. No, no, I think it was heavy cream. <laughs> Oh, like to eat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we went looking and I was like, in this entire redwood forest and these trees were here, you know, when, when Moses was leading the children of Israel and yet there is no cream to be had. And I was, I remember saying to you, I'm all about nature. Until, Until I need, I need something. something. <laughs> it's a classic Martha Beck moment. Yeah. Oh, so man. nature doesn't say you're supposed to be comfortable mm-hmm. at all. No. But nature does give you appetites, uh, a brain that teaches you to go looking for things that are going to keep you alive. So it gives you a cautious nature, but also a drive to explore. And I mm. think what nature is asking us all the time, even when we're living comfortably in our houses, our, our inner nature is saying, explore the limits of your desires. Mm. And life isn't safe. So be aware of that and pay attention and proceed with caution. But you must continue to explore or I will kill you. That's what nature <laughs> saying. <laughs> because if you never go anywhere or do anything, you're going to starve to death or die of 
bloodthirst or whatever. And also yeah. soul death. I mean, that's what we're really right. talking about. Once once anxiety and fear oh, so true. Has, has made your life tiny, then um, the, the richness is gone. It starts getting super beige in there. Not even beige. It turns dark. It can get very, mm. very dark in a brain that is just focused on anxiety. I've been to those places where yeah. anxiety starts to blend with depression. So there is a complete leaden inability to move on top of constant, you know, shrieking level fear. It is, it actually is hell. Yeah. 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 That's Life without, without courage without discomfort, without the willingness to brave discomfort becomes hell. It chases you. So culture says be proud of yourself if you've eliminated discomfort, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But right. nature would say be proud if you explore discomfort. Ooh. Is that it? I think that's true. I think that's exactly right. And I think, I mean, we do see it with our kid where um, she's constantly wanting to go to the uncomfortable. Like there is a drive yeah. in her toward things that have hurt her before. But there, it's, I think when, when we're little, it's stronger. In all baby animals, the urge to explore is strong. That's an interesting thing because the very impulse in the left side of our brain that goes toward fear in the right side of the brain, if we choose that, is more curious and exploratory. Hmm. So we're actually switching, but that um, we'll leave that for a more detailed discussion in books and programs and things. But it's exactly <laughs> right that nature is asking us to be careful of our safety, but it's also saying explore, 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 move outward. There's a reason human beings go everywhere and <laughs> climb everything and go down to the bottom of the ocean. It's a strong part of our nature. And I think finding a balance, like the culture right now, a lot of culture, and I think advertising culture is a big part of this, like you said, is I should never be uncomfortable, not ever. Hmm. And nature says, learn when being uncomfortable is useful to expand your comfort zone and learn when being uncomfortable is a signal that you have to withdraw. And there's a difference. There's a fine qualitative difference that we do not find because we're so convenience-sized. We're so huh. comfortable. That's really interesting because instead of just talking about courage, now you're actually talking about a skill that, that can be hmm. developed, a sort of sense yes. of, of the difference between danger and discomfort. It's so interesting. I like going down to South Africa to our friends there. Um, that our friends the Vardis have lived in in the bush in South Africa for a long time. And I remember going out for a little jeep jaunt with um, with Boyd driving, Boyd Vardy driving once, and we came around the a corner and an elephant attacked us, like full on trumpeting, ears flapping. It was loud and it was close. And Boyd switched into reverse, looked back the way you do, and he backed off saying, it's okay, friend, it's okay. So there was that. And then one day we were just sitting with them on the deck with the whole family, and I didn't hear or see anything. And every single one of them turned like a like a herd of gazelles toward a sound. And they were like, what's that? Like they, and they all went up and looked over the deck. And there was a leopard there, and there was a child there. And yeah, wow. it was so... It was like the they had learned the difference between being calm because there's an elephant attacking you, but it doesn't really mean business, right to the birds just stopped chirping or they gave an alarm call mm. under a bush over there. And that means there's a cobra over there and there could be like, the, it is a skill huh. that can be learned and nature teaches it to humans. But when we're out of the context of nature, we, we have more trouble finding that instinct, I think. Oh my God, I love that so much. And it's just, it like just reinforces the idea of the only way to hone that ability is to continuously expose yourself to different kinds of experiences. Mm. You know, that, that, mm. that, you know, we shall not cease from exploration. Like if right. we're always exploring, 
then it's almost like that in itself will keep us sharp. And I was just suddenly thought about, you know, um, in in the artist's way, Julia Cameron, she talks about going on an artist date, taking yourself off by yourself once a week and going and doing something different, walking down a different street, going to a place you don't usually go. And it's almost just like it could be as simple as that. You know, not, not that I'm getting prescriptive, but I just think whenever we walk down a different street, yeah, we think different thoughts, we're actually honing those instincts, right? You're absolutely right, because when I'm talking about the left hemisphere amygdala, what triggers it is not, well, it triggers both the amygdala, but um, not necessarily danger, but unfamiliarity. So it right. can be turned into either fear or curiosity and exploration, huh. and seeing something different will trigger it. And that's like- a way, yeah. Sorry, it's like that thing with a with a puppy when you get a puppy and there's like it's a really good idea to before they're six months old expose them to all these different things like walk have them walk between two parked cars have them uh, encounter someone on crutches or someone with a long skirt someone with a hat on someone with a beard and have these different experiences because the way that their brains develop probably very similar to ours is if you hit six months which I guess is a is a point of of maturity in in their brain or development, um, then they have to treat the unfamiliar as potentially dangerous. Yeah. And And their brains are a lot like ours with one and and like um, many other other social primates, but I think I've talked about this before. Our brains are different in one crucially, brilliantly fascinating way. And that is we have a mutation called neoteny, which means the preservation of the new. In other animals, there's an abrupt cutoff of um, learning and the curiosity of babyhood that comes when they hit like puberty. Uh, In our case, the reason we look different from other apes, we look like baby monkeys. When you see chimpanzees or monkeys on TV, they'll often be the babies because they're more attractive to us. They look more like we do. Mm. Flat faces, they don't have jutting jaws. They don't have really heavy, uh, you know, overhanging brows they don't we don't have fangs we have little teeth and we show them to each other and smiles to say i won't bite you the way baby monkeys do um we never hit the point where the brain stops maturing unless we stop learning unless we stop having new experience okay so is there a mirror image thing here then with the making the world bigger yeah. in the neoteny and the continuous learning, is that a, a mirror image analogy to the cycle of, of the world becoming smaller and smaller if we yeah. don't? Because it's like what's the opposite of learning? It's like every ah. day Yeah, and it's not unlearning. There's this unlearning thing where you unlearn what culture teaches you, but then there's unlearning that is like I forgot that I used to be have fun doing something because I haven't mm. done it for so long. It's, right. it's withered. It's Ooh. not just that you've unlearned. It, it literally withers. The, the neural connections in the brain wither like plants. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. You can, you can actually you can start to use curiosity and a, as a compulsion almost to lean into discomfort. So if you if you really want something or you're really curious about something and it scares you, leaning into the discomfort and staying present with the discomfort, this is what a lot of meditation is about, staying present with discomfort until that fear response calms down is how you make yourself, your world bigger. I got a meditation for you. Okay. Close your eyes, take a deep breath and imagine that your coffee has been put on a cup warmer for the first time. You take a deep sip of lovely warm coffee. You haven't touched it for a little while, but you know it'll be warm. Unbeknownst to you, a skin has formed on the top of your cup of coffee (laughs) because it's warm, right? And so, and also just imagine in this, in this visualization that you're doing a podcast in this moment. Wait, wait, wait. I got it. Okay. I got, right. it. got it. All right. Yeah. So now there's a long brown skin hanging out of your mouth. <laughs> oh, God. Luckily, someone else is talking right now, so you're able to save it. <laughs> Lean into this milk, milky skin. 
I have a slab of milk skin Just lean on my into chin. the discomfort. It's great. Exactly. You know, here's the thing. Your life is getting bigger right now because oh I, if we can just get you to just stay with this, you'll be able, I can see right now the slab of coffee milk skin on your cheek and see, no, don't wipe it away. Don't run into it. Just be with it. This would never happen in a tiny house. <laughs> just be with the milky skin. Um, there's oh, actually, I'm so sorry for derailing, but I just couldn't let that go completely unacknowledged because it was a big thing just happened to me. Ah, uh, there's actually a story that Liz Gilbert tells in her book Big Magic about a man who had to be with discomfort. He was an artist. He went to Paris to study. He was a penniless artist or whatever, and um, he went to a party that was hosted by his patron, who was a wealthy woman. You've, you've told this on the on the podcast before, but it bears repeating. Okay. And uh, it was a costume party and uh, he went and got this amazing lobster co uh, costume. He was like a human-sized lobster and uh, he had these big claws and everything. And he went into the party of all these wealthy people and it was a Louis XIV um, costume party. Everyone was dressed in brocades and silks and wigs and whatever. And he was a lobster and he had to make a decision right there. Do I go, do I flee from this party? Or do I go in and take it like a man and a woman or whatever? And uh, he went in and he the was the reason, life of the party. The reason that story is so funny is that it's also operating on an American in Europe. Yes. <laughs> social, like social oh morality type stuff, right? Anyway, uh, the whole point is that what makes you safe in the world is your ability to tolerate discomfort until you can learn what actually is dangerous. And that is what makes you safe. The, the no, will to yes. explore until you know for sure. Oh my God. The ability to trust yourself to tell the difference between discomfort and danger, right. trusting yourself in that, that's how you are, are safe. <sighs> and is there a risk? Doesn't that mean there's a risk that you could go too far? Yes. That's nature. There will always, always, always be a risk that you could go, that something could hurt you. And if you just stay in your tiny room, your tiny house for the rest of your life, if you're van or whatever, nature's still going to come get you. You're going to die. So yeah, there's a level of risk that is necessary to exercise courage. It's not foolishness, but the way you stay safe is to be willing to explore until you get a keener and keener sense of what's real danger and what is actually just unfamiliarity. Right. And and then the reason we keep exploring, which we haven't even kind of touched on in this podcast, is for all the all the things that life is, all the experiences and the richness of, of what it is to be alive. So, you know, when, yes, we're moving into our discomfort, but it's in the direction of our deepest longing. It's in the direction of our yeah. dreams, you know, yeah, and it's like towards all that makes life remarkable. Yeah. And that makes us, um, that makes life risky, but I'm, I'm going to do another thing I've done before on the podcast, which is to quote Helen Keller, who said, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Yeah. You want some life, you've got to walk right into discomfort, um, taste every flavor, right, of mm. discomfort and sit with it, like savor it. Like yeah, like the, become a connoisseur of, of, of discomfort because that's called life experience. Yeah. And, and, and you, all, you talk about the small acts of courage. Right. Yeah. Like, and, and that's, that's stopping your life getting small. Yeah. And it can be like, so I'll tell you what I will do right Go after on. we get off this recording, I'm actually going to email a person I should have emailed a long time ago. And every day that I haven't emailed this person, I become more anxious. And it's become almost intolerable for me to even think about it, but I'm going to go email them. Great. That's my act of courage. I'm going to, I'm going to stare down this cup of coffee <laughs> and maybe talk to a parent at a school pickup. <laughs> Little and little and little, little by little, it, it you start to branch out. And actually, if you can get the trend shifting away from shrinking into growing, it, it does at a certain point pick up some momentum and you start to have a richer life. And it's not comfort that makes it, it's courage. Right. Yeah. And and like one thing I want to do is is 
is come to value courage more in myself in in mm. this sort of context as as something that I can claim and practice and that can be a thing about me is that I I practice courage. Mm. And even value what what I'm taking away from this is um everybody values courage you know at least in name but I want to value my discomfort. Hmm. Um as long as it's in the direction of my longing I want right. to say um, like when I'm in meditation, here comes a feeling, this is really uncomfortable. How valuable this is going to be. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to like, let it soak through me until I, <laughs> oh, I'm just thinking of that skin, <laughs> the <laughs> coffee soaking through me. Sorry. Oh. Stay with it, Rose. Stay with it. I'm going <sighs> to, I'm going to come in where you are as soon as we're done with this and just put coffee skins all over you. And it's going to be <laughs> so enriching. Oh my gosh. You're and your courage and your discomfort are going to be legendary. Oh, I can only imagine. Well, I'll try to be brave. <laughs> okay, so all of all y'all out there, stay brave, lean in to discomfort, make your comfort grow, and, and stay, stay wild. wild. We hope you're enjoying Bewildered. If you're in the USA and want to be notified when a new episode comes out, text the word WILD to 570-873-0144. We're also on Instagram. Our handle is Bewildered Podcast. You can follow us to get updates, hear funny snippets and outtakes, and chat with other fans of the show. Bewildered is produced by Scott Forster with support from the brilliant team at MBI. And remember, if you're having fun, please rate and review and stay wild. You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need a new language. We need a new set of tools to find our way individually and as a group. And I know we can still do this. I put everything I do know about it into Wayfinder Life Coach Training. And the tools that I teach there are to help people redefine how we relate to each other, how we make a living, how we do community. We can only change the world for the better if we redefine how we think and the world needs Wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to MarthaBeck.com and you'll find your way.